Hey DER Task Force members, we're back with more meetup content for you. This episode is with Chris Rauscher from Sunrun, who's going to dive into the exciting new EV partnerships and opportunities they were working on with vehicle to grid, vehicle to home, go into some interconnection and metering challenges, and lots more things, uh, you know, not specifically just tailored towards the electric vehicle, but, you know, all the other sort of solar plus storage plus policy and regulatory areas that Sunrun is focused on. There's a lot of great member participation in this episode, so thank you to everyone in the community that continues contributing during the meetups on our Slack and across Energy Twitter, of course. Some other things to look out for in the future are more monthly meetups. We had a really interesting crowdfunding campaign that we were involved in a few months ago with the Footprint Project. And there's more information on the website and and we had a meetup about that as well if you want to learn more. We also have some new swag that just came out. So definitely check out the website for, you know, some new shirts and, you know, keep contributing to the community. We love the discussions and, you know, the nerdier the better. So with that, I'll pass it over to Duncan to introduce Chris. I'm super excited about our guest today. We have Chris Rosher. Chris, is that actually how you pronounce your last name? We've never actually said it in person together. Yeah, close enough. Okay, close enough. (laughs) Uh, Chris is the Senior Director of Market Development and Policy at Sunrun. And I'm really pumped about this one for a few reasons. One, obviously Sunrun's one of the biggest companies in our space and kind of charting the future for our industry. So it's awesome to get somebody from Sunrun here. Um, Two, we focused on Resi DERs in the past uh, when Kieran of Arcadia joined us. However, you know that's the, about the retail business, mostly about kind of demand side flexibility and offsite renewables, things like that. Whereas Sunrun's obviously all about on-site solar and storage, uh, so it's kind of a, a different edge of that Resi DERS category. Um, and then lastly, I got to connect with. Chris a few months ago, and we kind of chatted through some of the stuff we can talk about. Um, and I think he's just got some really cool stuff in store for us. His position at Sunrun, I think, gives him uh, sort of a lot of breadth uh, and understanding of what's what's happening and what's to come. So I think this will be a, a very cool meetup. Um, Chris, maybe it's a good time to uh, hand it over to you for your, uh, your opening presentation. I'll pull it up on my screen if you just give me one second. Sure. Thanks, Duncan. And uh, thanks for having me. And it's great to see such a a good group here uh, virtually. Middle of July uh, evening time for me. So this is a dedicated, interested crew for sure. Um, So as Duncan said, I'm I'm a Senior Director of Market Development and Policy at Sunrun. That's a title I completely made up, just like my last title that I also made up. Uh, But it represents that I am on the policy team, but I work mostly with the business development and grid services team working on policy and regulatory strategy for new business. And my presentation will kind of get into uh, what that looks like. I've been at Sunrun for uh, uh, almost six years now and have done everything from leading uh, individual states, leading the federal team uh, to to my job now. And uh, before I was at Sunrun, I was an energy policy advisor in the US Senate. So let's let's go down and jump into the meat of it here. I've only got, um, I think maybe four, Substantive slides, we'll move through them relatively quickly and maybe Duncan can share them uh, afterwards because I'd love to reserve a lot of time for for discussion. So I think for me, for um, my own guiding principle and then uh, uh, also for Sunrun, you know, we think about a lot about how are we going to combat the climate uh, crisis? And obviously this is not something that we, that we you know, open lobbying meetings with um, uh, certain members of Congress or, 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 or members of the state legislature, but it's really a guiding principle. And, and, and we really believe that we need to electrify the entire economy and run it on clean energy. Um, and we anchor a lot in Saul Griffith's work at um, uh, Rewire America. And he's done a lot of great modeling that shows that this is a, this is a net benefit for sort of everyone um, and individual families are stand to save a, a quite a bit of money. And I know from my personal experience, having fully electrified our, our second home now, um, that it can be, it can be a, a, a great improvement in, in your lifestyle as well. Um, and why DERs? Well, if you have a high electrification scenario, you're gonna have very peaky peaks and very trophy troughs. And DERs or flexible, dispatchable demand side management assets 
are the key to making this future grid much more efficient. Let's go to the next slide. So a quick case study of what does this actually mean in practice? Um, Sunrun, we've been trying to, uh, you know, we've been leading on virtual power plants in the last couple of years. We have maybe uh, a dozen or so either under contract or in development or operating. East Bay Community Energy out in, out in California uh, is one such contract for VPP that I find really exciting because it combines a bunch of really important elements. It combines um, solar and batteries at affordable multifamily housing. It's a little bit different from your regular run rate single family housing that we that we traditionally have done. So providing clean energy access to uh, underserved communities. And then the batteries that we're installing are backing up these multifamily housing units, at least in the in the common areas. Um, and then the, the, the virtual power plant is being used to offset a jet fuel fired peaker plant that, that needs to retire. So that has particulate emission impacts right in these neighborhoods and in, in, in underserved communities. And then obviously um, climate impacts for, for everyone. So this is, a, I think, a really great example to kind of open our minds a little bit of, of what can solar and batteries and more electrification offerings at the edge of the grid, what can they provide to utilities uh, and to uh, wholesale markets? I know there's a lot here, so I'll, I'll keep moving and then we'll, we'll field questions afterwards. Let's go to the next slide. So another great example uh, and one that I've worked intimately on is our Ford capacity market bid in ISO New England that we cleared um, about two and a half years ago now. Depending on battery sizing, when it's fully built, this represents between five and 10,000 homes with solar and storage in the region, networked together with software um, to provide capacity services in, in, in the wholesale market. You can see the something that I really uh, like to draw attention to, you can see the commitment periods here, one to five in the summer and then in the winter, five to seven. So in the summer, obviously there's some solar providing some power during that time, but in the winter time, there's, there's, there's no sun in the region from, from five to seven. So this is really a, a battery play, um, a sort of pure virtual power plant uh, play. Some other exciting things here is that uh, it's metered directly at the inverter. So we have direct metering inside the home as opposed to being baselined on the grids. So this is moving away a little bit from uh, your traditional sort of DR demand response uh, pathway. And then obviously through order 2222 from FERC, we are working both in ISO New England, but increasingly in New York ISO, Cal ISO, PJM, uh, and even MISO to try to open up more pathways like this uh, for uh, aggregated distributed resources. ISO New England today is really the only wholesale market in the country, uh, including Cal ISO, that we can bid in with an aggregated resource. But we hope uh, and believe that 2222 will help change that. Let's go to the next slide. So a lot of what we have been doing at Sunrun for the last, uh, you know, for the last 12 years, it's been solar. And then for the last maybe four years, it's been solar plus batteries. And recently we announced a, a new product offering um, and we're getting into the electric vehicle space. Ford and Sunrun announced a partnership in May, whereby we're, we are the preferred 50 state installer for the bi-directional EV charger for the electric F-150. We're also developing the tech for that bi-directional charger as well. And so what do we mean by bi-directional? We mean that you can charge the truck in your house from the grid. You can also charge it directly from solar. And then when the grid goes down, you can draw energy from the battery in the truck to power your home. And then uh, in the future, if the regulatory framework is there, which is something I work on, we can use the trucks in aggregate to provide uh, services to the utility or the wholesale market. That might be injectable energy uh, onto the grid, or it might be traditional demand response. So kind of uh, preset charging times. Um, I'm really excited about this. I think this is gonna uh, open up kind of the, 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 the DER space to a whole new population uh, in the country. And I've seen the data, I can't really get into it, but you know, Ford, I think it's publicly announced that they have over 100,000 uh, res reservations now, and I've seen the geographic diversity of that. And these are not, they're not all the normal uh, solar and storage buyers. So a lot of these people seem to be um, uh, folks who kind of want a truck, but they weren't sold. And now there's a truck with tech uh, and they want it, or they're already F-150 drivers 
uh, or increasingly it's uh, fleets. So companies that have that have uh, fleets of trucks and they're realizing that this is this is going to be far cheaper on total cost cost of ownership. But for me, this is really exciting and really matters because the long range battery in the electric F-150 is 130 kilowatt hours. Right, that is, that's huge. Uh, a Tesla Powerwall is, you know, 13 and a half kilowatt hours or so. You know, you're really only using 10, 11, 12 kilowatt hours um, if you're doing daily dispatch for time of use or, or daily cycling for time of use. So this is roughly 10 times the size of a Powerwall. So if you're, if you're talking about an aggregator using these for grid services, we could just use 50% of the truck's battery on a daily basis or for an event. And the truck owner or the lessee would never even know that the battery was being used because they'd still have a, a ton of range left. And that and that 50% would be you know, five power walls. So I, I don't think bi-directional EVs are gonna make stationary batteries go away. In fact, I think most people have both because um, uh, they have different use cases, but I do think this is gonna radically, radically alter the 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 landscape for for many reasons. A, a couple that I just got to get into really quickly are that these bi-directional trucks are going to be mobile power plants. So they could provide these services in the home. They could be providing them at a workplace. That workplace might be in a different state or in different utility uh, territory. Uh, they could be providing these services at some public charging. So the whole regulatory and policy framework around that has to be uh, has to be ironed out. Another thing that's really exciting here is that um, there's traditionally been friction between utilities and solar providers around who pays for system upgrades in order to have high penetration of solar, uh, let's say in a neighborhood. And traditionally, the solar customer has borne that cost. Um, these electric trucks are probably going to trigger <laughs> a lot of both utility side and customer side upgrades. But this is low growth for the utility. This is a this is a KWH opportunity. So will utilities see that and partner with us and 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 rate base, uh, you know, service line upgrades and pole mounted transformers, um, or will we be back to the sort of uh, uh, solar versus utility fights? I don't know, but it's going to be it's going to be really exciting. So I think that's I think that's my last substantive slide. Um, and I know I went really fast, but excited to to jump into some of the meat here. Hey, Chris, maybe just the first question to, to better understand some of the implications of, of the, uh, the F-150 EV model um, and sort of like vehicle to house uh, and things like that. You mentioned you, you, you don't see it necessarily threatening the stationary storage uh, market for Resi. Um, it do, what does really interesting me is the the sort of competitive proposition against uh, backup generators, right? Mm -hmm. Th this is essentially a free backup generator, assuming you have a use for the car and want the car. <laughs> um, and that that's that's pretty exciting because people spend upwards of twenty thousand dollars on ho whole home backup generators, and you know, in this scenario, maybe it's you know five thousand dollars for the extra power electronics and switches and such. I'm just making that number up, but something like that. Pretty compelling. Um, and if you look at a company like, I don't know, uh, Generac <laughs> doing very well lately, that's pretty exciting for Sunrun. I don't know. What do you think about the, the backup power market and seeing maybe a, a new version of home backup generators come to exist? Yeah, Duncan, I think you're exactly right. And I was going to bring up Generac as well. Um, I, the, I live in Maine. And the founders of of Pica, the battery company that they acquired, were were my neighbors. I know them. I know them very well. And you know, Generac, the story of what their 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 the, the companies they've been acquiring. They announced just today that they're acquiring another company in our space. Um, and you sort of track those acquisitions and their diversification uh, and their stock price. And I think uh, the, the proof is right there that this is this is this is really compelling for a cross section of people. And directly to your point. Yeah, this uh, you know bi-directional F-150 will completely obviate the need for a backup natural gas or or, or propane or diesel generator sitting in your yard. There there'll be no absolutely no reason to have that. Do you see people maybe having a little? Um, it, it's sort of like the backup equivalent of range anxiety. Like 
if uh, if I'm using my car to power up my house and then I want to go somewhere, I'm going to have trouble? Or is it just the battery's big enough that it just doesn't really matter? If there's a natural disaster, you know, you don't need to drive uh, 200 miles to go to the construction site. You need to drive two miles to go to the grocery store. Is it that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, Duncan, you're talking to a, a guy who works for a solar company. So, um, you know, 100% of these F-150 owners will have 20 kilowatt solar arrays on their on their roofs. So they're, they won't have any range or backup uh, anxiety. Um, that's obviously an ideal scenario. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, a large cross section of these people will have solar and be able to recharge their, their truck. But getting back to my earlier point about utilities, if you just look at the available roof space in, um, I would say probably a majority of the company, excluding a lot of the Southwest uh, and, and, and the Southeast where you tend to have newer, larger uh, homes. Most of, the, most of the homes in the Midwest and the, and the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic, et cetera, they just don't have the roof space to accommodate enough solar to net out uh, an electrified home load plus an electric F-150. So even with you know, fully maximizing their roof with net metered solar, this is still a giant load growth opportunity for the utility. Interesting. I, I have one last truck question, and then I'm I'm gonna uh, sort of uh, sh share share the mic here. Um, but one thing that's really interesting to me is right, Sunrun's in the business of offering solar as a service, of offering batteries as a service. Uh, is there a future where I could get my truck in the contract too, and just do it all at once? Get get my get my mobility, get my energy, and get my storage, kind of all in one big deal. Yeah, I can't, you know, I can't talk about the specifics of any partnership uh, or our roadmap, but I think there are a number of companies targeting a sort of all-in-one uh, monthly energy bill, uh, energy and transportation bill. So, you know, I know from, for myself, we, on our previous home, you know, we must have talked to a dozen contractors to electrify it. And then I did a bunch of the work myself. Same thing with this house. I, you know, I installed a bunch of the solar. I had 10 different contractors doing the heat pumps and the EV charger and the induction stove and heat pump, hot water heater, et cetera. And we finance all of those differently. Um, uh, and then we have a separate uh, financing arrangement for our, our EV as well. And uh, it would be great to have a single monthly bill that kind of rolled all of that in together, whether that's a lease or, or, or just a loan. Um, I think that's, that, that's, that's, that's really exciting, especially when you consider that these are multiple entry points into the home, right? Like you might get a customer that comes through because of solar or comes through because of a heat pump or comes through because of the truck. And that's all of those are opportunities to increase the electrification package with that customer. And so there's no reason why you shouldn't bundle the financing together. Interesting. James, I know you've got a question. Why don't, why yeah, don't I love that. Over to you. Yeah, before we go to the chat, uh, I just wanted to continue on uh, the backup uh, from, from the Ford F-150 idea, uh, certainly completely reoriented my concept of, of uh, backup, which it seems so obvious now, but it was like also not until it was announced. So, um, I, you know, kudos on, on that. Um, and I'm, I'm James, by the way, I'm one of the, the organizers of the task force, big fan of what you guys are doing. Um, so I just wanted to ask, you know, from Sunrun's perspective, um, I know you touched on this a little bit, but is there any concern about actually how good uh, like an F-150 is at backup that it, it sort of um, reduces need for uh, like say a, a battery? You know, I know a battery, like when you kind of think of it on this theoretical level, um, uh, it's great for like, you know, smoothing out the duck curve or something like that. It, it seems like at this point, though more of a purely economic decision. Uh, previously, it was a resiliency decision because you needed a voltage source to keep your, your solar running when the grid is down. But now uh, I, I imagine like a, a, a truck is, you know, an F-150 is acting as that voltage source. So do you see any redundancy there? Like what, what's it, you know, to the extent you can share uh, how the conversations have been um, you know, within Sunrun, not even about the F-150 competing with Generac, but also just with like Tesla Powerwalls. Because I always saw Powerwalls as actually being um, more of a resiliency play than, 
than um, like an economic play, at least for the time being until they, they come down in price a bit more? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, that doesn't really have any answers yet because we're still a few months away from actual, you know, customers buying the truck, not just reserving it, and then Sunrun installing chargers and combining other other offerings there. You know, we we've had discussions about this. I think there there are a bunch of different ways to look at it. Uh, no, number one, battery supplies right now are are extremely tight, extremely tight, and they may remain so for a period of time. And that has obviously um, upward, you know, it's created upward, uh, upward pressure on cost as well. So I don't think someone is necessarily gonna, or most people are not going to go out and buy uh, what is quite an expensive truck and then buy an expensive power wall or two power walls uh, right away, right? But as we see the supply constraints uh, lessening and battery costs coming uh, down quite a bit, I think you will see the combination of these two things for a couple of the reasons I, I mentioned earlier uh, and that you also hit on. Number one, the truck may not always be home, right? And if it's not at home, it can't provide whatever service you you want it to provide, whether that's um, uh, uh, providing voltage for your solar if the grid goes down or providing uh, a grid service to the utility or, or the wholesale market. Uh, no, number two, we may not also, we also may face um, barriers for a long period of time with vehicle to grid uh, regulatory policy, as well as you know, whether we can use mobile storage for that service. So that would also create a demand for stationary batteries as well. Um, then also, you know, you may have people who want the double redundancy and don't want to deplete their truck and want it always uh, maximally charged. I think that that's also a, a segment. I think the short answer is we don't know, but I certainly don't think that stationary uh, storage is gonna go away anytime soon, especially because the electric F-150 at first will be relatively expensive with a very large battery. And certainly most new EV drivers over the next five years, you know, they're, they're, they'll be like me that, you know, I got a bolt a couple of years ago and that doesn't do anything for my home. So I also want a power wall. Awesome. Makes, makes sense. Thanks. There. So why don't we just stick on trucks? <laughs> There's a lot of truck questions. This is uh, the truck task force right now. Um, Derek, you had a question about warranties that I think everybody's wondering as well. Do you wanna jump up here and ask it? Yeah, absolutely. My question is basically, would the additional cycling from uh, grid services impact and reduce drive, driving range for these vehicles much faster than the customer anticipated? Given that um, it, the customer may not realize how fast battery degrades if you do the full charge discharge all times a day. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it, it could. I think one thing that there are a couple of things that will hedge against that one, we are not, um, we are not taking someone else's product and operating it for a purpose that they haven't designed it or they haven't built into the warranty. So for this is this is part of the stated purpose uh, from Ford on the electric F-150. And this is the tech that we are designing together. So that will be built into the warranty. The other piece there is that um, as you know, as I'm sure you know, Derek, the the, de the demands at driving place on a uh, uh, on a battery are much more rigorous than uh, stationary storage and, and sort of regular cycling. And sort of third, to an earlier point, we're not likely to dispatch a hundred kilowatt hours on a daily basis. I don't think uh, to the grid. I mean that that would be either an extremely long window during the day or extremely high power. Uh, that we're putting onto the grid from a home. And I just don't think that's going to happen. So more likely you'll see 10, maybe 20% of the battery cycled on, on, a, on a daily basis. You could, you might be doing, you know, um, uh, time of use arbitrage in the home and not exporting to the grid. But again, it's, that's still gonna be 10%, maybe 20%. Uh, and that would require, require the truck to be home the whole time. Thank you. Sense. Um, there was one more we had, um, that is definitely something I've been thinking about. Um, Hayden, do you want to ask your question about interconnection? Uh, yeah, I, I guess my question was more about the, the revenue sharing with the, um, with the customers, but I'll go ahead. I, I was kind of curious, I, I'm not so familiar with the business model in terms of how you actually engage with the customers. So. Are you sharing some of the grid service, battery grid service revenues with the customers, or is this more of a, just a, a battery as a service uh, play? I, I'm just curious about that. 
Yeah, for, for our run rate business today with stationary batteries, um, the majority of, well, I guess all of those today, we own the batteries. We have a PPA or a lease with the customer. And when the battery is enrolled in the ICE New England uh, bid or an East Bay or an Orange and Rockland or HECO or, or a different VPP, we, share, we do share revenue with the customer. That might be in reduced monthly pricing or it could be in a yearly uh, cash card. There's some variations depending on, on the program we're in. But yes, we, we definitely share revenue with the customer. One of the reasons is that um, uh, if we didn't, we'd have our lunch eaten by other competitors in, the, in this marketplace because there are plenty of um, uh, you know, mom and pop long tail installers who also do a great job selling batteries. People take those, um, you know, pay cash or they finance it through a loan or whatever it is. And then in the Northeast, they enroll them in what we call bring your own device programs like Connected Solutions in Massachusetts or the many programs in Vermont. Uh, and the customers obviously get all of the revenue from, from those programs. So yeah, in order to present a compelling customer offering, we definitely share revenue. Makes sense. And I'm sorry, I mixed up the questions there, but I'm happy I called on you, Hayden. That was a good one. Um, Rachna, it, it was your question I was interested in originally on interconnection. Um, you want to jump up here and ask it? Yeah, yeah. So what I'm trying to understand is what sort of interconnection agreement you would need with the vehicle. And, you know, so if you have a stationary battery, you have the interconnection with the utility, they go through that process. But as we mentioned, the vehicle's moving, it's not never in the same place, but you want to utilize the VGI capabilities. So what have you seen in that space to kind of understand managing that interconnection or is it just vehicle to home? I, and just bluntly, I've only seen it work with vehicle to home at this point. The vehicle to grid is what I'm curious about. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, Go on. Uh, that, that question and questions like that, I, I, I spend a ton of time working on because um, um, I'm responsible for the 50 state diligence for the Ford launch. So it's these very questions. The, the, um, it sounds like you already probably know the answer on vehicle to home, which is that most states already have a backup generator uh, interconnection regime. Um, and this will likely fall under that. And so we don't expect a ton of hurdles there. For vehicle to grid, it's, it's, it's totally different. There, there, I haven't seen a state yet that has an express regime or a utility that has an ex express regime covering vehicle to grid yet. A lot of states and utilities have regimes on you know, batteries to the grid or, or solar to the grid, and we might be able to slot in under, um, uh, under a few of those. But this is an area where we will need to collaborate with utilities um, to create beneficial regimes, beneficial to both the utility and to, and to us and, and our customers. Because frankly, the amount of power that we would be able to put onto the grid from one of these trucks is going to be, you know, is going to be significant. Yeah, okay. That's helpful. I mean, I could go on forever, but I think there's so many other questions. Well, put, put them in the chat and we'll come back. Um, okay. Um, why don't we get off of trucks for a little while um, and go back to solar and VPPs and stuff. Um, I thought the two examples you gave were really interesting. I was actually particularly interested in the California example um, because it was multifamily and virtual net metering a little different than a typical Sunrun project. Um, and so did I, did I capture that correctly that, you know, for example, you have solar on the roof of this building or in the field next door um, and sort of through utility accounting, you're getting customers exposure to these credits. Um, but then you can also back up like the house meter, the common meter of the building. Is that right? East Bay Community Energy. Yeah, that, that's, that's with, a, with a CCA. We've had a lot of success working with CCA, Community Choice Aggregator, um, with uh, CCAs in, in California because they have a little bit of different motivations uh, a lot of times than, than traditional load serving entities. So yes, solar on site, which is you know a real a, a key for us. Um, um, uh, battery in the common area, and then to your point, Duncan, accounting to offset individual bills, and that's that's been something that's that's really tough 
doing affordable multifamily because they're all they tend to be metered differently and it can be really really hard to um, provide a service behind an individual uh, a, a, a unit meter we're now the leader on affordable multifamily housing in california and we've also opened up a number of east coast markets uh, for that business as well so it's an exciting on-site opportunity that 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 we're going after i mean that's really exciting i think um that's that's sort of a corner of the market nobody's really figured out yet or at least done at scale um, it would be really cool to see more of that. And I, I love how you're able to get everyone the economic value, but then still provide some kind of resilience service at the same time. It's a, it's a cool mix of kind of project archetypes. It, it's, it's, it sounds like you have some familiarity with these projects. It's, as you know, it's really, really hard, especially because there are a lot of mixed and sort of conflicting profit motives here because you might have one entity that owns the building and has the master meter they may not care about providing energy savings to their to their customers um, uh, or you might have a housing authority anyway it's a really tough market but there's a lot of uh, underserved need there in a place like new york where maybe you can't extract virtual net metering from the utility um, is community solar an option has sunrun thought about that I, I think we've taken, I, I'm, I'm not on the multifamily team, but I think we've taken uh, a look at that. I think one of the barriers is that, you know, being on site is, is relatively high cost. So you have to find an offtake uh, agreement that kind of meets that cost. And I, I'm not sure Community Solar does that, but it may. Cool, cool. Um, Elta, you had a question about virtual power plants. Um, it would be, be awesome if you could jump up here and ask. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Duncan. Uh, Elta Foley here, Vice President of Hawk Capital. I, I'm very curious about how you're working with, I'm assuming it's a Durham software vendor. I know that you had a previous relationship announced with um, AutoGrid. I'm just wondering if that's kind of a relationship kind of across your projects and overall just, you know, speak a little bit to the importance of software for these projects. Yeah. Um... I interact with the with the with the software team and our grid services implementation team fairly frequently, but I don't pretend to understand all the complexities. But I know that it's it is one of the more important teams at the company um, uh, because we're sort of building this whole airplane while we're flying it. Uh, we, so we have our own network operations center, our own um, uh, uh, dispatch center, and we're building our own software, as you as you mentioned, and. On the utility side, we integrate with, you know, like virtual peaker in some cases with energy hub uh, for a lot of the programs in the Northeast. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but it's definitely, it's definitely a linchpin to aggregation. Uh, interesting, because I thought you guys were licensing a software vendor. I didn't realize that you were building your own software. Well, so when I, and to caveat this, I, I don't have any knowledge of the software team. I know they're working on our system. So I can neither confirm, confirm nor deny that we're building something because I frankly just don't know. Totally. Sounds good. Thank you. Seems like on the software side, there's so much, just like I guess everything else in distributed energy, it, it's, it so greatly depends on like the programs you're interacting with and like the utility regime you're under. Like I imagine there's situations where one might use their own, one might use a license from a vendor and it's like always different depending on where you're doing something. Um, I guess just a, another typical DDR's challenge. And, and to, to that point, standardization of, soft, of, uh, of uh, DERMs, of platforms is something that could help tremendously. You know, like in the Northeast, we, it's a single wholesale market. Well, in New England, it's a single wholesale market. A lot of the states, a lot of utilities have uh, peaking bring your own device programs. And yet not all the utilities are using the same software protocol. They're not using the same onboarding uh, system. They're not using the same customer contracts, all that sort of stuff. So it creates a lot of friction and unnecessary costs. So standardization would be, would be key. Duncan, I, th I think that'd be a good, uh, it's a great segue actually into Michael Murray's question, um, which I think is a super interesting one basically around um, telemetry. So yes, what requirements does ISO New England have for your inverters to ensure data is accurately metered? Uh, it's frustrating that requirements vary widely between RTOs. 
So to your point, it's not just uh, the utilities, but also the, the ISO level. And, um, you know, I know something this is we, fa- we face all the time as a retailer is like just not being able to get access to meter data or whatever, whatever it may be. So those kind of um, what's technically feasible and then what regulatory regimes require you to do, uh, which may not always be the best technical solution. Like, can you just riff on that a bit uh, on the inverter question and then just performance for ISOs and, and the data requirements, all that in, in general? Sure. Yeah. Um, barring me remembering the exact telemetry requirements for ISO New England, which I don't uh, uh, offhand, the, the way that, that it's working there is, you know, your standard solar uh, and battery inverter, or you're just your battery inverter, if it's, if it's uh, AC coupled, uh, doesn't have revenue grade metering, but you can pay extra for Solar Edge to, or, or another vendor to receive revenue grade metering quality uh, inverters. And that's, those, are, those meet ANSI C1220 standards, so plus or minus 0.5% accuracy, which is just as good or better than many uh, utility uh, 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 meters that are out on the system. So those are the meters that ISO New England has accepted. I don't know what our telemetry requirements are or you know, how frequently they're, they're, they'll be pulling data. I think for that uh, pathway that we use, which is a non-energy market, passive on-peak demand resource pathway, which means we're, we're scheduled during those times and we self-dispatch. We are subject to scarcity calls, but we are, but we are, you know, we operate our own, our, our own assets. I think my recollection is that we are audited for performance uh, afterwards and randomly. So I'm not sure that we actually have telemetry um, to ISO New England at, at any sort of you know small time scale. You know, to that, and I'm going to combine questions from David Schmidt and Ethan Goldman here, like more about metering. You know, w- with regard to say like a FERC 2222 future where we have all these devices in the home doing things, you know, you could imagine, you know, three companies, three different companies being in the same home. Um, or you could imagine like someone settling to the inverter or some other device, whereas someone else is settling to the meter. Like, it seems like there's a lot of complexity here. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of... Um, 222, I'm not going to say it's vague, but like there's a lot of interpretation by the ISOs. I, I mean, it's no specific question, but <laughs> I assume these are things Sunrun's thinking about. It's complicated. Like, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so we're, we're part of a cohort of companies that are basically going around and talking to all of the, all of the ISOs, um, mostly to the stakeholder groups, um, about these very issues. And in fact, through, through AEE, our cohort, um, made a filing at FERC, which resulted in orders 2222A and B that addressed some of these issues. It's, it's, a, live, it's a live issue, right? And uh, there are a couple of big kind of um, uh, forks in the road here. One is a, a lot of the markets don't want to allow submetering. So I think everything should be you know, settled at the utility delivery point and, you, and that you shouldn't have submeters inside of the home. But that kind of kind of ignores the real promise of these DERs, which is that they can do different things at different times and, and, and baselining is totally inapplicable. So that, that's one. Another is that at the home level, putting the putting you know electric F-150 aside, you might have you know f- five kilowatts of power available and 10 kilowatt hours of energy total. <laughs> and so when you start talking about telemetry and expensive metering and all this stuff, it's like, it's not worth it which means that we will not, we will just simply not participate in the markets because the costs are way too high. So that's another thing that we've been, that we've been really working on. Cause on the one hand, you know, we really need to be submetered. And on the other hand, we can't have the metering solutions be overly complex uh, uh, and expensive. And then you might add in two or three different aggregators uh, as you were mentioning, Duncan, who are all operating behind the retail delivery point. I don't think that's that's going to happen at least right away, and and I don't think it'll happen maybe ever, just because there's there's a lot of friction, and it'll be simpler for just one home energy manager to to operate. But theoretically, you could have Ecobee doing the thermostats, you could have Sunrun doing the Tesla, or you could have Sunrun doing the F one hundred and fifty, and then you could have Tesla doing the Powerwall. Um, I think that could be that could be a little too complex. 
yeah, you can sort of erode each other's uh, contribution. Yeah, it's, there's, there's just a lot going on there. Um, why don't we zoom out from the hyper details of, uh, of, of demand response um, and DERs? Um, Kim Robbins had a great, just high level policy question. Kim, do you want to jump up here and ask it? I'm happy. Uh, yeah. yeah, sure. I can go ahead. All right. Sure. So first of all, hi, everyone. My name is Kim. I'm a recent graduate from Johns Hopkins and a young professional in the energy industry. Um, so I know sort of throughout this call, we've talked a little bit about the need to solidify the policy and regulatory frameworks that make all of Sunrun's work possible and make solar and storage products successful. And I know we talked a little bit about sort of differences in utilities and differences in operating in different states, but I was wondering, given that you have a policy background, if you could talk a little bit more about particular policies that you would like to see at like the local state and federal levels, whatever level you want. Um, just talk a little bit about specific actions, legislation you wanna see that would make um, solar and storage most successful? Great uh, question, Kim, with probably the most unsexy of answers possible, which is um, uh, uh, we really need to work on permitting costs and timelines. Uh, so for, for our company, Solar App, which is an automated permitting um, um, software platform, that's been a huge priority for us because if you look at a state like Massachusetts where they have home rule, which is to say every municipality does its own permitting for you know, every project uh, in a home, you might have, I forget how many municipalities there are, but there, but there are hundreds in Massachusetts, right? And they all do it a different way. And so you might have to like in one town, you might have to go to the town office and get a physical paper copy of a permit, take it home and fill it out and then like get it notarized and then bring it back to the town hall. And in, in, in the town next door, you might be able to just go online and check some boxes and pay pay your fee and you and you get your your per permit to install solar or, or EV charger or whatever it is. So and that that permitting cost and friction accounts for um, the huge disparity between the, the the cost of rooftop solar in the U.S. versus a place like uh, Australia uh, or or Germany. So. Those types of like very uninteresting things really, really need a lot of attention. But I think, and, and they're even more important than like, you know, a, a fossil fuel ban or uh, an electrification requirement or standardization across utilities. Uh, unfortunately, I think permitting and, and, and interconnection are, are, are primary. And is solar app, um... Is it sort of an opt-in thing where all these different regions can say, you know what, we're gonna use solar app or is it sort of like the API layer that somehow connects to all these different processes? Yeah, it's, it's totally opt-in for, um, for towns, for municipalities. The, 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 the sort of selling point for them is that the way solar app is built, it'll help weed out a lot of projects that would be deficient and would cause a lot of unnecessary staff time for the town. And because it's so fast, the town can bring in permitting revenue, revenue much, much, much faster than they could if they use the, the, old, the old process. But yep, 100% opt-in. Um, you know, this is America, so I don't think we're gonna have top-down mandates uh, forced upon our, on, our, on our municipalities. Solar app isn't in the infrastructure bill? It is. Well, it is. I mean, it sort of is. We we are working with DOE on it and um, uh, all the way up to, to Secretary Granholm level. Cool. And to that point, anybody who's more interested in solar app, uh, Igor in the comments from the California Solar and Storage Association posted a uh, like public launch uh, with Secretary Granholm um, in a few days. So uh, ah. on that link, if this topic, if permitting is a topic that gets you going, um, but it is super, super important. Um, all right, let, let's stick to high level stuff. These, these are fun and I think a little bit more accessible for people as well. Isaac over at Wood McKenzie always, always asks, asks big questions. Uh, Isaac, do you want to jump up here? Sure. Hey, Chris. Um, thanks for the presentation today. Um, so I'm thinking about, uh, DRs and virtual power plants, uh, across the U S. Um, and thinking about, where DRs will be for Sunrun in let's say four to five years. So imagining we're having the same conversation four to five years, um, thinking about, you know, Ford F-150 has been rolled out. Maybe there's another type of DER that you guys are able to offer as well. Um, 
and thinking about whether those end up being bigger or more important for Sunrun than batteries today is sort mm. of and how you would think about that breakdown between let's say a EV charging as part of a virtual power plant, batteries, and maybe some other asset. Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, um, and I, I'll answer it. I think from a uh, from a personal perspective, a non Sunrun perspective, just yeah. to stay out of any uh, uh, product roadmap stuff. But um, it's a great question. <laughs> I mean, even just just a year and a half ago, maybe a year ago, um, I wouldn't have guessed the Ford the Ford deal. And so, you know, two years from now, I, have, I really don't, I really don't know. Um, but I think if, if, if I could, you know, have my druthers, it would be a full home electrification package that has fewer boxes to be installed. Right. So in my house here, we have one, two, three, four, we have four panels, four electrical panels, one main and three sub panels. Right, because we we had to put in a sub panel for the charger. We had to put in another sub panel because our main panel was full, so we had to put that in when we did the solar. And then we're building a little apartment above the garage because it's COVID and everyone's doing house projects, um, and that has its own panel as well. And I think there's a question here about MPUs, main panel upgrades. So I think in the future there's, there there will be many fewer boxes, and maybe you'll have one box that will be the the panel. It'll be your insight into the home, like a sense, uh, sense plug is today. Uh, you know, obviously, Span is a fantastic company. Former uh, Tesla and, and Sunrunners, who are who are leaders there. Um, it'll have home insights. It'll hopefully have the the charger integrated or built right into it, as well as your inverter for your for your solar, and will really be the brain for the entire home. And you can both have insights, but then also control the home. So. I think that might be that might be a product development that we would see in the next couple of years, but again, this is like everything in in, in our industry where you're just going in at you know some someone's heating heater fails in the wintertime and it's all you can do to like not have them replace it with another oil furnace or natural gas boiler or whatever it is, and so you just like throw in a sub panel and a heat pump or a couple of heat pumps right, yeah. and if we were only doing new builds of homes, if we were doing whole home retrofits, I think we would arrive at that one box solution faster, but it's probably gonna be a bunch of cobbled on stuff for a while. All right, Ethan, you have like six questions in here. I think a few of them have been answered, um, but do you wanna, I, I don't wanna make sure they don't, they don't uh, all go unanswered. Do you wanna jump in with one or two of them? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, they've, they've sort of flown, flown by here. Um, I mean, I guess the, the larger question might be like, how are we selling all this stuff to, to consumers and is the pitch about CO2? Is this a, a cost proposition? Are we factoring heat pumps in here? Like where, where are we, are we driving the market from? Cause we keep talking about the complexity of all these things together and there's like all these stack costs. And I, I mean, I know that's what you guys are, are good at, but, um, I mean, it seems like we we in this industry are always trying to like sell on on price, and it's this horrible trap because most people don't actually give a shit about that. And so, what what do they, and how do we talk to them better? That's a great question, Ethan. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really hard one to answer. I think <laughs> a lot of that kind of comes down to an individual salesperson on an, on a sales team in a region and whatever is working there. Uh, that's an unfortunate reality, I think, of our business um, at the sort of, you know, we're, we're now maybe a 10,000 person company exclusive of partners. Those are just the direct employees. We have our own kind of sales leadership and, and where we're driving. A lot of that is on savings and price and resiliency and, and, and control increasingly as well. Um, but I, I, I don't know what happens in, in national grid New York territory and what, like what really, really works for the sales teams there, but I, I, I have a feeling that, you know, that on Long Island is probably pretty different than in South Carolina. So it comes down to having local channels in other markets. I think so. Yeah. And, and, and different, different talk tracks, different sales scripts for different, different products as well. It's going to be one thing for the F-150, one thing for the battery, and then, and then something different for solar and, and heat pumps. Um, so I think we've hit most everything in here. Um, and we are coming up on 7.30. 
Um, so, something I've been thinking about, um, you know, we spend in this group a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are the, what sincerely are the things that separate, what qualities separate distributed power from centralized power? Um, and there's really only a handful of things, right? It's not as if it's like magically different. You can pinpoint, you know, three or four things. Um, and the, the, the location being behind, being behind the distribution grid, you know, obviously for a customer who's, you know, has behind the meter system, that's going to save them on their distribution charges. But something that I think is often neglected is the long run costs of distribution and transmission, right? So if you look at um, New York's value of distributed energy resources tariff, which is used for community solar and used for solar exports, um, if you're in certain parts of the grid that need some help uh, from an infrastructure perspective and you can reduce load at certain times, um, you're essentially getting compensated for the long run cost management of the grid, not just whatever today's costs are. Um, and I think that's really interesting because it's in a way saying EERs can be wires, uh, virtual wires, <laughs> if you will, um, which I think has a lot of interesting political implications. But beyond that, you just don't see that happening in many places. I think Veter is the only place this really happens, right? Where you're getting compensated for, you know, whatever, reducing load between these certain hours in this certain load zone that's almost run out of wires. Um, but I think it could be a really big part of the DER's value stack, right? And I think the Chris, Chris Clack work at Vibrant Green Energy shows this, right? Um, that, you know, dealing with T&D costs when when simultaneously decarbonizing with renewables and electrifying everything is like a, the crux of the problem, right? And if you deal with it intelligently, you save like $500 billion. Where, where, like, how are we going to get at those $500 billion? Because I think there's like one state where you can do it. <laughs> um, you know, any, any thoughts there on just like long run T&D costs and you know, we know DERs can help, but like, how's that actually going to happen? Yeah, I mean, th this this is the conversation, and this will either be the barrier to a clean energy future, electrified future, uh, or if we are able to sort of flip the script, mostly with utilities, um, it will be what really accelerates this. And 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 Duncan, you know, you New York does have a veter. We were successful with our lobbying to maintain. Uh, mostly current rate retail net metering, retail rate net metering for residential customers. Meter is 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 um, complex and uh, can be unworkable at the residential scale. So, and I, so that is it is a model, but it's something that we, if it's so hard to figure out how to replicate that in other areas. I've spent a ton of time working in Puerto Rico after hurricanes Irma and and Maria, and had many conversations with the different. Um, utility CEOs, I think we, we've had five of them uh, now since the hurricanes and, and three governors, I guess. Um, and the, you know, we, we are always pitching the, you know, rebuilding the virtual power plants there. And, and, and Prepa was always like, you know, why would I pay 15 cents or, or, or 20 cents a kilowatt hour for energy from you guys from virtual power plant when I can get utility scale solar for four cents? And we're like, you don't have transmission. Like your transmission lines are down. Your distribution grid is like completely broken. You're an island. You don't have land. Like, where are you going to get this four cent solar? And even in that situation, it has been there's there's been a it's been really difficult to kind of break through and show the promise of DERs. Um, even though at an individual level in Puerto Rico, people are installing solar and storage, you know, just at an incredible, incredible pace. So, Duncan, I think this is this is a really big thing we all have to put our shoulder into and really work hard on. Totally. Yeah, I, I really agree. And it's, it's obviously very complicated, right? Because you can't, you can't be paying DERs to be like virtual wires that don't actually then contribute that cert. Like, there's a lot of questions to answer. Um, obviously, too, there's um, anyone in this group is familiar with our nagging interest in franchise rights. And I think this is like the beginning of the peeling of the onion. Um, so that's interesting, too. Have you have you had Duncan? Have you had someone from Green Mountain Power, maybe Josh Castengay, join you? Because I think GMP, if every utility in the country were like GMP, Sunrun may not have a business, but I think we, because <laughs> GMP would just be doing it for us. But I think we would all be way farther along in, in uh, uh, clean energy deployment. 
I tweet at Mary Powell all the time, uh, but uh, that that hasn't done it yet. Um, <laughs> if you know so, anyone, let let us know. I do. Yeah, yeah. I'll follow up. Duncan, I thought I'd try. Uh, I've never done this before, but uh, a lightning round because we have a policy person uh, in front of us. I have three questions that uh, you know, same format. You could give as long an answer as you want, but we're going to call it a lightning round. Is that you? Re you ready for that, Chris? Ready. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. So FERC twenty two twenty two. A lot of uh, very polarizing actually within the DR community. So. Uh, let's call it boom or bust. Is it is it gonna is it gonna boom DERs or is it is it a bust? I, I had a reporter call me up after FERC put the order out. Uh, I won't say who, but people could probably guess who it is. And he was like, "So does this mean no net metering for you guys anymore? Like, are we done? Is it everything just in the wholesale market?" And I was I was like, "What the heck are you even talking about?" Um, I I think um, on this, the industry is going to craft its own destiny. If we're not there and driving it, it's going to be bust. And if we are really, really driving it and taking advantage, then it's going to be boom. So re remains to be seen. We got we got to lean into it, like you said. Um, so uh, on that note, uh, the Biden's infrastructure bill, bo boom or bust for dirt. <laughs> you can uh, say you can say I'm not going to answer as well. You know, whatever, whatever. It depends on how a lot of that money flows down to the states and to state energy offices and how it's dispersed at that level. And if we see a lot of it going to smart electrification of, of heating, cooling, and transportation, then I think boom. There's like dollars in there for resilience too. So yeah. that's the right places. So it sounds like a lot of this action in your mind is really at that state local utility level. Um, so on that note, uh, the last one would just be um, is, is there in your mind, I know you mentioned permitting, but that's, that's kind of more local region by region. Uh, is there like an Archimedean lever? We talk about it a lot for me and, and probably Michael out there and Abe at, at Amperon. Um, we think it's settling to the meter, uh, for, uh, you know, settling, resi settling to the, to the, uh, meter, to the smart meter. That's my Arch Archimedean lever, but for you, is there one sort of national uh, FERC level, whatever policy, if there's one thing, if you were like dictator for a day, what would it be that would really unlock uh, DERS and, and all this stuff we've been talking about at the national? Um, this is being recorded, right? But I think I can, I think I can say this, because this is probably, it's, um, Give me. At the end, we can clip it if, if it's, you know, if you get in trouble. Give me uh, Chair Marissa Gillette from Connecticut Pura. Put her in charge of every commission in the country, and put in place Hawaii-style performance-based rate making for every utility in the country, and define it extremely, extremely narrowly, and hold the utilities to it. Uh, Chair Gillette is not. She's not an apologist for DERs. She's not someone who's unfair and skewed toward our industry. She's just a very, very good engaged chair. I think that would be, those two things would be the levers big enough to move the, to move the world on, uh, on clean, clean distributed energy. It's funny, it actually turns out uh, this community pulled together a bunch of its comments on a, well, almost a year ago now, um, one of Connecticut Pura's, uh, like the battery storage proceeding, program proceeding. Um, and uh, somebody actually just posted in our Slack today that we saw we were, our comments were referenced in uh, what was released today. So that was super cool. Um, but it's, it's funny you mentioned that just because I think uh, the reason we did that is for, because we saw the chair as, as like intellectually receptive to good ideas. Absolutely. And it was really cool. Awesome. Well, um, unless there are any last sort of pressing dying questions, um, I think we've We've eaten up an hour and a half of Chris's time. Duncan, a third, a third thing on the lever, just because I have to do it. I, there's probably some people on today who are trying to figure out where they're going to head in their careers uh, in clean and distributed energy. And um, uh, uh, go to state public utility commissions, become staffers there. Go to state energy offices, become a staffer there. Low level, medium level, high level, doesn't matter. Put in your time. We really, really need good people at state level agencies to be thinking about the stuff, to implement, go do three years 
and then cash out and, and go to industry. But that's, that would be the third lever is getting a lot of good staff people into those agencies. That's a great take that we have not heard before. So I appreciate that. Awesome. Um, so, so Chris, we try to end these things um, by, you know, you've given us an hour and a half of your time and we've learned a lot from you. Like what, what can we do for you? What, what is Sunrun looking for? Maybe there's like some roles you're hiring for that people in this community could be a good fit for, or, you know, you're looking for channels in a certain region. Um, you know, what can we do, do for you guys? Yeah, well, our grid services team has open positions right now. That's mostly on the execution side to program management. Um, the policy team either has or will soon have uh, advertised positions. I love to send those to the DER task force um, to disseminate them. And in lieu of that, um, everyone should feel free to, to email me or hit me up on LinkedIn and share what you're working on um, and, and let me know how you could fit in at, at, at Sunrun. Love to continue the dialogue. Awesome, that's really cool. All right, well, I think that, uh, that concludes another meetup. Um, Chris, really appreciate you, you, you coming and joining us. It, it was awesome to have you here. Um, also <laughs> appreciate you dealing with a very wide breadth of questions. <laughs> Um, this, I think the whole thing is pretty much a lightning round. Um, and, and yeah, this was awesome. Thank, thanks everybody uh, in the audience for joining and everybody who asked questions and came up on stage. Thanks again. All right, DER Task Force, that was a great meetup. Thanks again for all the member participation and questions. And, you know, we had a great turnout for this one. So uh, hope to see you guys at the next one. Just want to remind everyone to make sure that you're subscribed to our website and dertaskforce.com. We have a monthly newsletter that we've been putting out. We also have a lot of great content that we share on Twitter as well. So make sure that you're following us on Twitter. Alrighty, I'll talk to you guys soon.